HK. For the last three to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. Fed leaves interest rates on hold. The Bank of Greece warns that a Lehman weekend is looming and Hong Kong is braced for a vote on its future. Clearly, most participants are anticipating that a rate increase this year will be appropriate. Now, that um, assumes... Uh, As you can see, that they're expecting a pickup in growth in the second half of this year and further improvement in labor market uh, conditions. And um, we will all be, we we will be making decisions, however, that depend on the actual data that we see in the months ahead. That's uh, Fed Chairwoman Janet Yellen with her latest statement on the rate hike following yesterday's FOMC meeting. So continuing on course with our triple treat for the week, the Fed decision is out, but we're still awaiting word on Greece and on Hong Kong. We'll discuss all of that with Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management this morning. Then Fitch Hong Kong's Grace Wu gives us an update on China banks. And finally, we get the heart rate up with Maurice Levine of Anytime. Fitness. Peter Lewis, our regular Thursday guest host, is back. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. Peter, you know, Janet Yellen still hasn't budged on rates and insists on data dependence being sort of the main story. But uh, if the Fed were truly data dependent, wouldn't they have acted by now? Absolutely right. They should have raised rates today. I mean, if you look at the data that they have in their possession right now, unemployment is falling, wages are rising, inflation is picking up, the economy is coming through its soft patch in the first quarter. Yep. Interest rates are still zero. What more do they want? They are behind the curve. They should have raised rates last year. They should have done it today. Behind the curve. The Fed has downgraded its economic outlook for 2015, and it now expects growth to come in between 1.8 and 2%. Compare that to March, when it was expecting a growth uh, growth rate of 2.7%. It also noted that a failure by Greece and its creditors to reach an agreement risked disruption to the financial markets and the U.S. economy. Here's the reaction from Mitsubishi UFJ Securities' John Herman. I, I thought when I looked at the statement, uh, I think there's uh, people, you know, the general reaction should be they've, you know, reduced their GDP expectations for the year and not just for this year. They're scaling them down for the next couple of years. They're scaling down their interest rate expectations this year and for the next few years. So it sounds, you know, it all sounds kind of more dovish. In a, in a very near term, they're sounding a little bit more upbeat. We have seen definitely a bounce back in activity in the second quarter, that kind of thing. I think broadly, uh, one, if I had one criticism, it would be something that 
we've noted for the last four or five years, which is that the Fed starts out the year always so super optimistic mm -hmm. in terms of the growth outlook, and then three or four or five months later is forced to slash their predictions and sort of uh, backpedal and do a bunch of things, and that usually uh, sends, a uh, sends a lot of different waves through the markets. And I think that's tricky because if we just went back just a few months ago, you know, you're looking at nine participants, more than half, saying either four, six, or seven rate hikes this year, huh. and now you've got Two. everybody saying two or three or less. Peter, we have a listener saying that uh, rates are a distraction and 25 basis points won't kill the economy. What do you think? Well, it's not so much, you know, whether rates rise 25 basis points or not. So there's two important things. First of all is what happens after that first rate increase. The first rate increase rarely kills the economy or kills the markets. What has killed the markets in the past is then a succession of rate increases after that. And what the Fed is afraid of is, are they going to do what happened in the 30s when the Fed raised rates too quickly um, and caused a, a, you know, a financial depression at that time? They don't want to go too early and cause the economy to tip back into recession. Yeah, they don't want to go too early and they don't want to go too fast. Uh, the Hugh Hoover Institute's Tim Kaine also thinks that this is, you know, a dovish approach that they're taking. I found the biggest surprise was the uh, unanimity, right? Because there, there are some hawks there. So maybe the exchange was, we won't raise rates yet, but we'll promise to raise them twice this year. Um, that's basically what I would call an on-ramp strategy. I'm not sure if that's the best policy. I am a little disappointed because I think there are some risks here. But, uh, you know, not surprised. I think uh, pretty, pretty steady path forward. The U.S. dollar index fell 0.7%. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury fell initially, but then paired losses later in the day. Yields on short-dated bonds fell after the Fed meeting, and they're generally more sensitive to rate rises. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 31 points to close at 17,935. The S&P 500 closed 0.2% higher at 2,100. And the Nasdaq rose 9 points to close at 5 the Greek Central Bank has warned for the first time that the country could be on a painful course to default and exit from the Eurozone and the EU. The Eurogroup uh, Council of Eurozone Finance Ministers will meet later today in Luxembourg to discuss the latest in the crisis. But with no new proposals forthcoming from the Greek government, it appears that the last chance to solve the impasse between Greece and its creditors lies with an emergency meeting of EU leaders over the weekend. David Wu is head of global rates and currencies at uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Here's his take. Um, I think the way I think about this, most people think, well, there can only be one of two outcomes when it comes to Greece. Either they're going to come to an agreement in the last minute, or there won't be an agreement, there will be Grexit. I think there's a third scenario that's presenting itself. It's Please. coming increasingly more likely, which is basically a gray area that they basically impose capital controls, they default, but they don't exit the euro. Third scenario, what do you think, Peter? It depends who they default to. Um, it's not necessarily the case that a default leads to a Grexit. If Greece fails to pay its debt to the IMF at the end of the month, the 1.5 billion euros, it could still carry on within the euro. However, on July the 20th, they have to pay 3.5 billion euros to the ECB. If they default to the ECB, the ECB will no longer be able to support the Greek banks. It won't be able to um, provide liquidity to them. Banks will start to collapse. Then this Bank of Greece will have to... Um, 
step in and in effect create a new currency for Greece. It will be out of the Eurozone by virtue of um, not having a central bank anymore. And this is why they've said that there's already a Lehman weekend looming. Yes, this week is critical. This week is critical. Well, shares in Athens felt uh, 3.2% taking their decline over the past four days to more than 17%. The yield on the 10-year Greek government bonds rose to 13.03%. Compare that to 11.3% at the close of last Thursday. And protesters have gathered outside Hong Kong's LegCo as lawmakers prepare to vote on an electoral reform package with the two-thirds majority required to pass the proposals that pan-Democrats uh, continue to hold out against voting for the bill. Chief Secretary Carrie Lam urged pan-Democrats to respect public opinion in an effort to persuade them to support the government's reform plans. However, opposition party members also claimed public opinion was on their side and accused accused the government of misleading Beijing on the views of the Hong Kong public earlier in the reform process. All right, let's bring in our first guest of this morning, Puru Saxena, who is the founder of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. Good morning, Puru. Good morning, Renita. So, Puru, were there any surprises for you in today's Fed statement? Not really. Uh, Our position has been for a while that the Fed will probably not raise interest rates until the end of this year, uh, simply because the dollar has appreciated quite a lot over the last 12 months in anticipation of the rate hikes. Inflation is uh, negligible. Uh, it is not near the 2% um, uh, target level that they've set. And although <clears throat> unemployment has fallen, as Peter alluded to earlier, I just think there are too many uncertainties in the world. And especially with the ECB and Bank of Japan easing, I don't think the Fed will uh, stand in the way and tighten monetary policy in the US. So I think although anything can happen, I'd be very surprised if interest rates go anywhere uh, this year. So, uh, Puru, some analysts are suggesting that the Fed's future rate hikes may be a slow burn in the Asia-Pacific region over the next couple of years. What do you think? Well, we've seen, Renita, in the past cycles that whenever the Fed has raised interest rates, all those economies which benefited from the easy monetary policy in the prior years uh, felt extreme pain in the tightening process. So if the Fed increases interest rates by 25 basis points each time over a series of rate hikes over maybe a couple of years or maybe three years or who knows at this point. But if that happens, then the excess liquidity which was sloshing around the emerging markets are going to uh, is going to get pulled back into the US and I suspect the dollar will rally and the emerging markets are going to feel the pain again. But do you think um, with, with the Bank of Japan easing, we've got the Bank of China, the People's Bank of China easing, as you rightly mentioned, the ECB is easing, should should the Fed be concerned about that or should they not be focusing on their own domestic situation, regardless of what overseas central banks may be doing? Well, uh, Peter, the Fed left its uh, dual mandate, its agenda a long time ago. You know, these days their sole purpose seems to be to keep the banks afloat. And whether you like it or not, most of the central banks these days, especially in the developed world, tend to act together. So something is going on. You know, they should have raised interest rates a while ago, as you said. But what they should have done and what they will do can be quite different scenarios. And I don't think rates are going anywhere this year. And they seem to have taken on a new mandate of trying to support the financial markets these days as well, don't don't you think? That's what I said. You know, they've given up on their sole purpose a long time ago. And now they seem to be meddling in everything. Um, Well, rightly or wrongly, only time will tell. But I just have a nagging feeling that during the next recession, which probably is two, two and a half, three years away, when we do get the next bear market, then it'll be very interesting because all the banks would have already extended their balance sheets. And you would have to wonder who's going to save everybody then. 
Puru, uh, you know, shares in Hong Kong and China certainly bounced back yesterday. Can you tell us why? Well, I wish I knew. <laughs> Nobody knows why the market acts in any manner on a particular day. But what I can say is that the Shanghai Composite is in a powerful bull market. It's in a powerful uptrend. It has been that way since last April, May, when the Shanghai Composite bottomed out under 2,000, just around 2,000. We've gone up to about 5,100 uh, recently. We're now at 4,900 or so. And we've gone up roughly 200, sorry, 150% during this bull market in about 12 months. Although these gains seem quite outsized when you compare it to the other markets, if you actually see what Shanghai Composite did uh, between 2005 October and 2007 October, it went from about 900 to 6,124, which was a 500, over a 500% gain in two years. So although the Shanghai Composite seems very frothy, especially the smaller companies, which are trading at very rich valuations, I would never underestimate the madness of the mob. You know, things which are expensive can stay expensive and become even more overvalued. So the trend in Shanghai is up for now. How long it stays up is anybody's guess, but I think we still have another 12 to 18 months of um, huge returns ahead of us in China. So, uh, you know, one of the analysts uh, uh, on the show yesterday said that, you know, uh, at about 20 times P.E. is when uh, the market, the Shanghai market, uh, become Chinese stocks become, you know, reach their full value. It sounds like perhaps you don't necessarily agree with that. Well, if you look at the past cycles, Renita, I remember distinctly sitting in my office in 2007 and the Shanghai Composite was trading at close to 50 times earnings. And in the prior bull market, at the turn of the millennium, when stocks peaked, they traded at 45, 50 times earnings. And this is the Shanghai Composite I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the small companies. So whoever thinks that Shanghai Composite at 19 is a bubble need to revisit history. It's not 19, is it? If you take the banks out, which massively distort that PE, then you have a much, much higher PE. Yeah, more like the, 50. The, yeah, you have a much higher PE on the markets. So if you take the median PE rather than the average, which includes, you know, which has that distorting effect, then you get much closer to 50. Well, I'm not saying that stocks are cheap in China. I mean, I just said earlier that some of the st- stocks are extremely frothy and overvalued. But for me, I've learned from history and being in this business now for 16 years, just because something is overvalued doesn't necessarily mean it's going to crash tomorrow. Expensive things can become even more expensive and stay expensive for many years or in some cases several months. So I think it's a bit too premature to call the end of the bull market. We are still in a bull market. And as always, the price action will tell us when it is time to exit. And for us, in our managed portfolios, in our equity portfolios and the fund portfolios, uh, we have got a sizable position in Chinese air shares. Currently, about 15 to 20% of the assets which we manage are in China's air shares. All right, Puru, thanks so much for joining us this morning. That's Puru Saxena, and Thank he you. is the founder of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. Well, as China looks to restructure its economy from one that is investment-based to a consumer-centric economy, banks will p- p- play a crucial role, and a debt swap plan is already underway. Let's bring in now Senior Director at Fitch in Hong Kong, Grace Wu. Good morning, Grace. Good morning. So, Grace, how will the local government financing vehicle debt swap affect banks credits, bank credits profiles? 
Well, we don't think the debt swap itself is going to have material rating implications, uh, given the fact that when we do our rating assessment, we've already assumed that part of the local government liabilities will eventually migrate over to the sovereign balance sheet. Um, that said, it does have uh, impact on profitability for the banks, given that the yields on the municipal bonds uh, would be lower than what the banks previously earned on their local government debt. Partly mitigating that margin impact um, is the the fact that the risk rate uh, is lower for municipal bonds. Um, the risk rate typically is only 20%, whereas for um, local government debt, uh, the risk rate would typically be over 100%. And there's an added tax benefit in that the interest income from the municipal bonds would be tax-exempt, whereas for local government debt, uh, the banks will be paying um, the standard corporate uh, tax rate on that income. So net-net, um, I think the profitability impact is going to be uh, fairly neutral. Um, but in terms of implication to our ratings, we think that's quite limited. Grace, when would you say that non-performing loans would peak in China? Let's have to say as a credit agency, we have uh, have given up on, on trying to estimate uh, what China's uh, MPL should be. And uh, to us, the MPL ratio itself is actually less meaningful. We estimate that around 38% of credit now reside outside the form of a traditional bank loan, meaning that any deterioration in these type of non-loan credit actually would not be factored into the MPL uh, figure itself in the first place. Also, there's a lot of regulatory forbearance that's happening behind the scenes that delays the recognition of asset impairment. Uh, also, we've got uh, asset management companies that are playing an increasing role uh, in terms of buying structured um, distressed assets directly from borrowers. So, Grace, as um, as, as the banks move um, the, the, these off-balance sheet sort of loans onto their balance sheet and, and swap them for, for municipal-type bonds, they free up regulatory capital, don't they? What, what do they do? What could they do with that freed-up um, sort of capital? And can that help them um, sort of boost their profitability as a result? If they deploy that freed up um, capital to um, pursue further asset expansion uh, or to grow higher margin lending, uh, then that would help with the profitability. Um, But that could be a near-term gain uh, as we're aware that um, with taking on higher risk lending, there are also higher credit risks uh, that um, the banks would need to deal with uh, further down the road. And presumably you don't want to see the latter. You don't want to see the the banks freeing up regulatory capital only to use it to make more um, sort of risky loans with it. Exactly. Um, One of the key concerns we have uh, with China is simply the size of the debt problem itself. Uh, In terms of the um, money supplies, it's basically uh, nearly doubled from 2008. um, And China now has one of the highest uh, credit to GDP ratios uh, globally. Grace, how would you say, how vulnerable would you say are Chinese banks to a property decline? We estimate the direct and indirect exposure uh, to property is around 60% uh, for the Chinese banks. Uh, And while we see that threatening the viability uh, of Chinese banks in the event of a significant drop in property prices, uh, that's not our base case scenario. Uh, So I would say that our current viability ratings, uh, which measures the standard loan strength of the banks and our uh, double B and single B range, have fully captured um, the potential risks Regarding, um, uh, regarding with the property, um, we think that uh, the sort of significant decline in property would be a bit of a high impact uh, but low probability scenario. 
All right, Grace, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Grace Wu, and she is a senior director at Fitch Hong Kong. The Nikkei is uh, down 0.19% to 20,180 this morning. Australia's uh, ASX 200 down 0.03% to uh, 5,588. And Seoul's Kospi up half a percent to 2,046. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.13 US dollars. The US dollar will buy you 123.52 yen. And one pound sterling is worth 12 Hong Kong dollars and 28 cents and one US dollar and 58 cents. Having discussed for so long, we can finally get it. Of course we shouldn't stand still. Let's have one person, one vote to have a say in Hong Kong's future. A regime of universal suffrage that complies with the basic law. Five million voters electing the chief executive for the first time. I'm Carrie Lam. For our future, cherish this opportunity. Please support the universal suffrage proposal. 2017. Make it happen. The time is now 8.23 a.m. and you're listening to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotrahora. With nearly 3,000 franchise locations in 15 countries, Anytime Fitness isn't a company that's just growing in its home country, but one that could soon arrive in your neighborhood. So let's bring in their master franchisee for Asia, Morris Levine, who is in Hong Kong this week. Good morning, Morris. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing. My pleasure. So can you tell us a little bit more about your business model um, and specifically with a view to franchises here in Hong Kong and Asia. Absolutely. Anytime Fitness is unique to Asia. We are the first and only 24-hour network gym in the region. And that means that people could use a gym in, their, in proximity to where they live at any time of the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we base our gyms in community areas, and we uh, look after our members. And uh, one of the important points is that when you look at the gym business, people are looking for convenience. So what we try to do is remove the barriers to a healthy lifestyle by giving them access anytime they want. And we have a system where one key fob, one key, opens the door, unlocks the door to 3,000 gyms around the world. Meaning if you're a member in Hong Kong, you're also a member of one of our gyms in Singapore, and you're a member of one of our gyms in Philippines, Malaysia, or one of our 1,800 gyms in the U.S., or 400 gyms in Australia, and so on. Marisa, this is a finance show, and we've got uh, you know, investors you know, yes. who listen in to look uh, for ways to grow their money and their capital. Um, could investing in franchises, gym franchises, be considered an alternative investment? Absolutely. So um, our gyms are doing exceedingly well in Asia and throughout the world. We have uh, an incredible result in the market over um, 60% of our franchisees on multiple gyms. So they are buying one gym and they're buying more than one gym. Personally, I must confess, before I was with Anytime Fitness, I never owned a gym. Uh, so you don't have to be a gym buff necessarily. A lot of our clients are lawyers, our franchisees, or accountants, and so on. Here's an interesting statistic, though, a very important statistic. Zero, we have a 0% default rate 
outside of the U.S. That is that none of our gyms have ever closed, suffered liquidity issues or closed as a consequence of operating the gym. So we have a great deal of support, coaching, uh, embedding, embedded learning, and so on. Our gyms are reaching operational break-even in under six months on average, which is unprecedented in the gym industry. What are you finding here in Hong Kong? You've got one uh, franchise in Kowloon City Correct. And, and another just, one opening? That's right. We have another one opening in the city, one opening in the new territories. The difference between our gyms and the other gyms in, in Hong Kong is that we are a smaller-based community gym. We're in proximity to one, within one to three-kilometer walking distance of where people live. And the thing that hurts the gym business, the thing that, 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 that hurts the profitability of a gym business is our high rents and high staffing costs. On average, our staffs, our staffing levels are very, lo- very low. We have one club manager and one personal trainer on average. And our gyms, being that they're based in community areas and they're a small footprint gym, but they don't, we don't, we don't compromise in the quality or the integrity of the design or the equipment. But we are doing exceedingly well, and we're very different again to the other gyms. And, and these are twenty-four hour gyms. And, and do you have much demand for people going to the gym at you know two a.m. in the morning? Great question. You know, it's crazy. Around thirty percent of our members are working out after hours. Why should we why should we not provide a facility where a member can access a gym anytime they want? Again, it's about removing the barriers to a healthier lifestyle. People these days have no time to to get to a gym. They have no time to look after their wellness. If we can give them a, a clean and beautiful environment they can access at any time. I'm from New York. Hong Kong is 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 an, an Asian New York, in my opinion. And, and compared uh, to New York, I mean, New York is a saturated market in terms of you know gyms. Is, is, you know, is there a lot of potential here in Hong Kong? Do you know what's incredible? You look at the number of um, gym goers, you know, the, the number of subscribers and members in Hong Kong. You'll be very surprised to hear that under three percent of Hong Kong residents actually have a gym membership. So we're talking to 97% of the audience who have never been to a gym or are not necessarily going to a gym right now. So we're not just interested in conquest business. We're interested in having people come to the gym for the first time and to look after their wellness. All right, Maurice. Thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. That is Maurice Levine, and he is the master franchisee for Asia at Anytime Fitness. All right. Let's take a quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down Three-tenth of a percent this morning to 20,158. Australia's ASX 200 is down six-tenth of a percent to 5,558. And Seoul's Kospi up half a percent to 2,043. Gold is currently valued at $1,183.40 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $63.73. So, Peter, we have uh, lots of uh, things to look forward to. Still two on our triple treat yes. for the week, Greece and Hong Kong. Uh, with the Hong Kong situation, how do you think, one way or the other, whatever happens, how do you think it's going to impact financial markets? Well, I, the, the surprise would come if the government's proposals actually got uh, voted through. Then I think there will be a, a positive effect on Hong Kong's financial markets. But I think most people here in Hong Kong don't expect that. Um, and I think if that is the outcome when the vote is finally taken, I don't think it's going to have a major impact on the Hong Kong markets next week. 
All right, Peter, thank you for that. And thank you for joining us this morning. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. He is the founder and he is also our regular guest host on Thursdays here on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up for this morning's show. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart for today. It'll be mainly fine and very hot apart from some isolated showers. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 77 And here's Samantha Butler with the news. Legislators will shortly begin their second day of debate of the government's political reforms. More than 40 lawmakers have yet to speak, so it looks likely it could take until tomorrow before a vote is taken. But that looks set to go against the government, with opposition among pan-Democrat lawmakers showing no signs of weakening. Speaking to RTHK this morning, Executive Councillor Fanny Law expressed her regret that the proposals look set to fail. This is most regrettable and it's heart-wrenching to have to come to this present stage because we spent so much time over the last 20 months to try to debate and put reasons into the debate. But I think there were some misjudgments along the way and we really must sit down and mend the fences after the whole saga is over. We must find a way forward and we must address some of the very deep-rooted problems in our society. For example, the world disparity, the housing problem, the economic development. A series of bombs have ripped through Shia mosques and offices in the Yemeni capital Sana'a, killing more than 30 people. The blast targeted Shia worshippers at their evening prayers and offices belonging to the Houthi rebel movement. This man witnessed the devastation. Suddenly we heard the explosion. I went outside my little shop and I saw the children on the ground bleeding. Some had eye injuries, others had leg injuries, and some had shrapnel wounds on their faces and on their heads. The explosion was terrifying. Islamic State militants said the attacks were in revenge against the Houthis who've taken over the capital and much of Yemen. The government in exile and the rebels are currently attending peace talks in Geneva. The two most senior defense officials in the United States say there's no way